0: to the RTI Time Machine. Today's Time Traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination. The 1980s. In mid-July, 30 years ago, a new era in Taiwan's history began. A movement for democracy won out, and decades of martial law came to an end. Autocracy and single-party rule were done away with, and in their place came a flowering of openness and civil rights. It was a big transformation, but not one that happened abruptly. Last week, we heard from Professor Chen Fangming, University Chair Professor at National Zhengzhou University's Graduate Institute of Taiwanese Literature. He told us about the rise of Taiwan's democracy movement in the 1970s and about its supporters' early struggles. Today, he joins us again to take us through the rest of the story, through the 1980s and all the way to the milestone year of 2000. Professor Chen told us last week about how economic growth in the 1970s had created a democratically-minded middle class. He says this economic growth continued to expand into the 1980s with the foundation of the Xinjiu Science Park. Taiwan's growing middle class was now stronger than ever before, with many having studied abroad and most having at least graduated from university. Their belief was this, that a two-party system would be beneficial for Taiwan and end the excesses of one-party rule under the Kuomintang, or KMT. Despite government interference, the organizers of the democracy movement were able to reach an audience of people like these through a magazine, Formosa Magazine. The government could try to disrupt the magazine's operations, but it found it couldn't silence the democratic ideas the magazine spread.
1: We women's movement, women's movement, and
0: As the government continued to block the democracy movement's progress, it also found itself up against a constellation of allied movements spreading in Taiwan society. There was a women's movement, a worker's movement, an indigenous Taiwanese movement, an LGBT rights movement, and a movement to protect Taiwan's environment. Even those who would have been expected to support the KMT government, weren't necessarily happy. The KMT had fled to Taiwan after losing the Chinese Civil War in the 1940s. Now, after decades in virtual exile, these aging Civil War veterans started to call for the right to visit their old homes back across the Taiwan Strait. Under the status quo of single-party rule, all of these causes found their way forward blocked.
1: In the year 1986,
0: building pressure for change came to a head. People had long been talking about founding an opposition party, and that year, they finally did it. At a conference in Taipei's Grand Hotel, delegates announced the creation of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. They did so at great risk. Originally, the new party's founders were going to be arrested. In an era of martial law, this shouldn't have been a difficult thing to do. Professor Chen says that the party's founders expected the worst, and they even wrote farewell letters to their families. But after a long time spent waiting around for government forces to come get them, it became clear that they weren't going to be arrested after all. Here, as before in our story, Professor Chen says it's possible that the United States applied the right kind of pressure on the KMT government and stopped the planned arrests. Either way, as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, it became clear that the new party was here to stay. By 1987, the combined weight of the democracy movement and other social movements reached a critical mass. In July that year, martial law was formally lifted. Two figures are often credited with making the end of the martial law era possible. The first is then-president Jiang Jingguo. He was the son of Chiang Kai-shek, the KMT leader whose government had imposed martial law in the first place. The lifting of martial law in 1987 came just months before Jiang Jingguo's death. The other important figure here is Li Denghui, the president who then succeeded Jiang. I ask Professor Chen how he assesses their roles both in the lifting of martial law and in advancing Taiwan towards democracy. He says both figures were critical to our story. Professor Chen says that during the later years of his life, Jiang Jingguo began to take a more relaxed approach towards governing. He also changed the identity of the KMT. In part, this was because he knew firsthand how hated the status quo was. In 1970, while in New York, he himself had been the target of an assassination attempt by Taiwanese dissidents. We heard last week about government efforts to sideline Taiwan's local culture in favor of its own vision of mainland Chinese culture. This attitude towards Taiwan and all things local extended to Taiwan's people as well, who face discrimination even when working in the government. Professor Chen says that as local people pushed for localization, so too did Jiang Jingguo, though in a way that was his own. His way was to promote people from Taiwan within the KMT, those who were already in the party and followed its values. It was something both new and conventional at the same time. But Jiang Jingguo could make waves too. He also shocked some by remarking that he too was Taiwanese. If that was the case, Professor Chen says, wasn't the entire KMT? So, Jiang had his own approach towards changing the party and reforming. But this approach moved far more slowly than actual social change on the ground. And Professor Chen says social pressures forced the lifting of martial law, the final domino to fall.
1: So, you know, he
0: As we've said, Jiang Jingguo died just months after the lifting of martial law. Despite in-party wrangling to keep him out of the position, Li Denghui, a native of Taiwan, took over as president after Jiang's death. His career as Taiwan's first president after the martial law era reminds us that even after martial law, Taiwan's path to democracy still had a long way to go. In a sense, it was he who helped bring Taiwan over the finish line. At the start of the 1990s, he got old guard lawmakers and long-sitting members of the National Assembly to retire. This move opened up their seats for popular election and cleared the way for a more truly representative government. Above some objections from his party, he also allowed Taiwan's first-ever direct presidential elections, which he won in 1996. Then, when the next election came around in 2000, he helped Taiwan clear its last major hurdle. That year, for the first time, an opposition party won the presidency. The party that won was the DPP from 1986. Lee went around convincing his fellow party members to accept the result and hand over power peacefully. Today, after several backs and forths between the KMT and DPP, this kind of handover is taken for granted. In Professor Chen's view, none of the presidents that have followed have equaled Li, and these contributions are the reasons why. Thirty years on from the end of martial law, not everything is perfect. But during the 1970s and 1980s, Taiwan's people did something remarkable. They asserted their power and discovered that they couldn't be stopped. And now, for all the contentions and disagreements Taiwan's people have, they've secured the right to criticize the government, to organize politically, and most importantly, to choose Taiwan's future themselves at the ballot box. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. This is Radio Taiwan International.